Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. This week, the House of Representatives voted to initiate impeachment proceedings against President Joe Biden. Outside the Capitol, Biden's son Hunter, who was recently charged with federal firearms and tax crimes, made a rare public media appearance and condemned Republicans for their, quote, baseless inquiry. They ridiculed my struggle with addiction. They belittled my recovery. And they have tried to dehumanize me all to embarrass and damage my father. On the same day, across the street, the Supreme Court said it would take up a case that could decide the fate of two of the four criminal charges against Donald Trump in the D.C. election subversion case. That was just a Wednesday in Washington. Earlier in the week, special counsel Jack Smith asked the Supreme Court to decide a question that will determine whether his D.C. case is allowed to move forward at all. Jack Smith asking the court to weigh in on Donald Trump's claim that being president gives you absolute immunity from prosecution. The former vice president, the former president, the president, and the president's son all have had separate special counsels assigned to them by the Biden Justice Department. Trump, of course, is facing criminal trials in four separate jurisdictions around the country next year and could be a convicted felon on Election Day. He could even be in jail. Republicans in Congress have tried to intervene in every one of those cases, arguing they're all politically motivated, while at the same time calling for the prosecution of the president's son. Presidential politics is rarely uncontaminated by what's going on in Congress, the courts, and at DOJ. But next year really will be different. 2024 will be defined by the collision of politics and the law. The political fortunes of Joe Biden and Donald Trump will be affected by decisions made in the Supreme Court, by district judges in Washington and Florida, by local officials in Georgia and New York, by congressional inquiries, and by federal prosecutors, to an extent that is unique in the history of presidential campaigns. So this week, we're going to sort through this swirling mess of law and politics. To help us make sense of it all, I got together with my colleagues James Ramoser, himself a lawyer and also Politico's legal editor. This is a completely novel issue. The Supreme Court has literally never weighed in on the immunity of former presidents from criminal charges for an obvious reason. This has never happened before. So it's tough. And Betsy Woodruff-Swan, who's been on the Hunter and DOJ beat. Of course they're thinking about the politics because it's impossible to think about Hunter Biden or Donald Trump and imagine or, or use your imagination to divorce those two men from politics. They're, they're mixed up. In our conversation, Betsy and James highlight the relatively unknown figures who emerged in 2023 who are likely to have an enormous influence in 2024. They reassess the conventional wisdom that everyone may be getting wrong about the politics of the Trump trials. And they dig through everything you need to know about Hunter Biden. I'm Ryan Lizza, and this is Playbook Deep Dive. You're a legal editor. You're not a politics guy. So I, I really want to ask you not so much about the Trump political strategy and how he's, you know, weaponizing these cases on the campaign trail. We're all familiar with that. But in terms of his actual time as a defendant, what does it mean to be a defendant in a federal criminal trial? Like, what are the demands on your time? Um, they're, they're quite enormous, uh, to be frank. You know, unlike in Trump's civil cases, typically criminal defendants are required to be in court at the trial for the entire time. Um, now, I, I suppose it's possible that Trump could get some kind of dispensation so that he could continue campaigning. But I think it's quite unlikely that, you know, any judge would, would grant such a dispensation. And the, the regular rule would apply that Trump would have to sit there in the courtroom 
you know, Monday through Friday, you know, eight hours a day for potentially weeks or months, it will impose a, a significant burden on, on his campaign. And that's an issue that the Trump and his lawyers ha- have raised very vociferously in attempting to get these trials pushed back. So if you're covering the campaign next year and one of these trials is happening, I mean, it, it's literally going to be a, a courtroom campaign, uh, despite the fact that it's unlikely that cameras will be in these courtrooms, but he's going to be at the courtroom every day. So that means mobs of reporters outside the courtroom watching him come in and out, public statements on the courthouse steps. Like that could be what campaign 2024 looks like for uh, weeks, if not months. I think that's right. I mean, Trump's stump speeches will be made from the courthouse steps, uh, ra- you know, rather than from, um, you know, Ohio or, uh, you know, or or um, or North Carolina or 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 or, or, or the, the the usual campaigning that you're going to see. Yeah. Quickly on the politics of this, I had an interesting conversation a couple of days ago with a Trump advisor who said that we're about to head into a very interesting test case of political conventional wisdom. When Trump was indicted way back when, the broad pundit consensus was, okay, this indictment will help him in the Republican primary because it will galvanize and excite primary voters. But then it'll be a death knell for the general because suburban moms and swing state voters will say, We don't want somebody under indictment to be the president. But increasingly, in terms of just empirical evidence from polls, you know, take the polls for what they're worth, all the requisite throat clearing aside, that's not panning out. Uh, If you just – I've got on real clear, I've got their their polling average up. Uh, If you look at the, you know, an economist poll from December shows Trump and Biden tied. Morning Consult has Trump up by two points. Even even a, a national head-to-head for Biden that NPR has, Biden's up one. The Trump advisor I spoke to noted that because of electoral college math, when Democrats win the national vote, the national popular vote by one point, it's a Republican blowout. So one question Trump people have is, sure, either, either this indictment is helpful in the general or how how could you even imagine these numbers being better than they are? Uh, and that is itself, I think, a, a broad and super interesting political question. Have we reached a moment in terms of Americans plummeting faith in institutions where facing four different criminal proceedings is at the bare minimum not a political problem but potentially – arguing just based once again on the empirical data, is it potentially actually a political asset for this person? And, you know, the next years, we're going to find out the answer to that question. But it's pretty striking that it's a question that we can seriously ask with straight faces. It's an excellent, excellent point, Betsy. And I I would say People will often talk about if someone from that seems too far to the right or too far to the left gets nominated in a presidential primary, um, oh, you know, they're going to have trouble in the general. But, you know, if you, if you made an argument that got you the nomination, the presidential nomination of your party, um, that probably shows that that argument is uh, in the realm of possibility uh, for winning the, the the general election. In other words, what you said is not so insane and so crazy to uh, 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 half the country that you can win uh, you can win with it. I would say the the flip side, the sort of the Democrats, um, you know, there are a lot of Democrats who didn't want a Trump opponent or don't want a Trump opponent to win. The, the primary, right? They don't want to run against Nikki Haley or or Chris Christie or or, or e- even DeSantis. And whether that's a smart thing to want or not is a, is a different question. But I think your advisor is making a, a a smart point there, Betsy. That this is this is going to be tested, and the number of times that conventional political wisdom has been wrong in recent years <laughs> is uh, <laughs> uh, you know we would take all number. of our hands to count. <laughs> James, whatever happened to the hush money case? Alvin Bragg sort of kicked off uh, Trump, the Trump in, the, the year of Trump indictments in 2023, and the case just sort of disappeared from the headlines. Um, 
What what should we expect uh, on that in 2024? It, it definitely is the most soapy of the four cases, but uh, unfortunately, it, it has many fewer episodes than a typical soap opera. Been a little dormant lately. Um, that case is scheduled to go to trial on March 25th, actually. If the D.C. federal case, if the federal election case um, stays on schedule, then I think everyone agrees that the hush money case would would get pushed off just because the hush money case is simply not as significant uh, of a case in terms of the the gravity of the the charges. Um, But if um, the the federal election case gets delayed, then, you know, in in theory, the the hush money case could go to trial, you know, in, in late March. Trump is trying to delay things there as well. Uh, so, so we'll see. There are a lot of trials we want to get through. We're going to try and focus mostly on the on the federal trials, but we'll, we'll, we'll talk about Georgia and Manhattan a little bit uh, as well. But let's start with the Washington case. In that case, James, the Supreme Court is now um, a big player uh, on two big issues, on this question of Trump's immunity and then slightly different uh, question around the law and obstruction of justice. Um, but can you lay out for us, James, uh, what is the Supreme Court's role here and how might it affect the timing of the Washington, D.C. case? Yeah, that's right. Within the last week, uh, the Supreme Court has become suddenly sort of inextricably intertwined um, in the federal election interference case, which I think is probably the most serious case that Trump faces and is the case that is currently scheduled to go to trial first. Uh, That trial is currently scheduled um, for March 4th. Uh, It's, I think, quite unclear right now whether that trial will really happen on schedule. And that's largely because of what the Supreme Court chooses to do with the case. So like you mentioned, um, the Supreme Court is is now potentially taking up two issues that affect that case. Um, the most urgent issue is this question of whether Trump has immunity from the charges altogether. And the trial judge overseeing the case, Tanya Chutkin, ruled earlier this month that he doesn't have immunity, that he's not immune, that a former president can be charged criminally for acts that he undertakes while he's in office. Trump appealed that trial judge's ruling. And the normal procedure here would be for the appeal to go to a federal circuit court of appeals. And then if he loses there, then he would get an appeal to the Supreme Court. And that whole lengthy appellate process could take many, many months um, and potentially stall the trial um, you know, indefinitely because while this immunity appeal is um, proceeding, all trial, that anything having to do with the trial has to be frozen. You can't move ahead with the trial while his immunity is being um, adjudicated. Now, the Supreme Court hasn't actually said yet, as we talk here on Thursday afternoon, uh, whether it's going to grant Jack Smith's request and intervene now. I think most experts think it's pretty likely that there will be enough votes on the Supreme Court to do that. Um, and, And if they do, that Jack Smith has essentially asked the Supreme Court to hold an expedited oral argument and... Uh, resolve this immunity question quite quickly in hopes of keeping that March trial on track. A few questions on this issue because I think it's so interesting and and it's to me one of the biggest developments of the year, which is the the fact that the Supreme Court is going to have uh, perhaps the final say on the political implications uh, of these trials, or rather, whatever the Supreme Court does here is 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 going to affect twenty twenty four in a big big way. So a couple of questions. One is, um, what's the, uh, the the court has said that Trump has to respond to this request by December 20th. We're recording today on December 14th, so we don't want to know what Trump's argument's going to be. But considering that Trump's strategy is to delay these cases as long as he can, um, but he's, but, uh, and the Supreme Court is probably the, his, his, you know, a, 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 friendly forum for him in, in general. How is he going to respond to this Jack Smith petition uh, for the Supreme Court to decide this uh, right away? What's a, what's a credible argument that Trump 
I imagine Trump's going to say, no, 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 we, we, don't, we don't want the Supreme Court to do this. We want the, the regular process to work. The appeals court should be the one that, that decides this issue. Uh, or am I wrong about that? Like, what can they, what, what, are they gonna, what are they likely to say about this? Yeah, I don't think they actually have much of, a, of, a, of an argument because everyone kind of agrees that the Supreme Court will have to be the, the body to resolve the immunity question um, ultimately. So, you know, I think that, you know, the best argument he has is simply a procedural one. Uh, and, you know, he presumably is going to say that, you know, the justices should just stay out of it for now and let the normal appellate procedural process play out. And, you know, the D.C. Circuit could take this up quickly and, you know, develop a more full record that will allow the Supreme Court to review it in the normal course. I guess that's what he'll say. This was is a pretty rarely granted uh, a petition, but it is within the Supreme Court's rules. Tell me if I'm wrong about this, but my understanding is that it's only re- in recent years, say the, the the last decade, that it's become more frequently used, and that actually is, is it right that it was the Trump administration that was successful in using this more than than other presidents? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. You know, the Supreme Court, you know, sort of uh, got this power for itself. I think in like the 1920s, and very rarely used it for many decades. But over the last 10 years, you know, it has increased. Um, its use of this uh, sort of procedural mechanism to intervene quickly in a case. So um, you've seen the Supreme Court willing to intervene um, at the early stages when the court believes that, uh, you know, a lower a lower court judge might have gotten something wrong or, you know, a case is just of exceptional importance and, you know, needs Supreme Court review urgently. Um and, you know, obviously this, this Trump case is, is a little bit different. You know, I think that there might be some allies of, of Trump on the Supreme Court who understand that allowing the process to, 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 to run out for as long as possible will be helpful to Trump and, and you know, might be reluctant to, to intervene now. But, you know, if, if I were a betting man, I, I would say the Supreme Court's probably likely to, to understand that it will have to be the the final decider here. And it's probably better for America to decide this issue uh, more quickly rather than allow it to percolate for potentially months or or even years. James, can I ask kind of a speculative uh, question here? For the Supreme Court to to grant cert in a case like this, four justices have to agree, right? Yeah, that's right. And what I talked to a, a person a couple of days ago who's a huge Supreme Court geek who said probably the three liberal justices would have given it a thumbs up and then they would need one more conservative justice to get on board. Do you have any guesses as to which justices probably moved to grant cert to this case? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that That's right. You, you know, on the, the nine-person Supreme Court, you need five to issue a majority opinion, but only four to actually take up a case. And, and, and that rule of four applies in this unusual posture. I, I think that um, it's pretty much a certainty that the three liberal justices, like you say, Betsy, we, you know, will be willing to take this up quickly. Um, and then, you know, for the potential fourth vote, I would definitely look at, look at John Roberts, um, you know, and potentially people like Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett, who have shown some willingness to to forge a more moderate path than, you know, the hard right justices on the Supreme Court. Do you have any hunches about where Gorsuch would come down on this? He sort of like hates the executive branch, right? Yeah, he's a bit of a wild card. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, Gorsuch, <laughs> Gorsuch can be Gorsuch, Gorsuch can be tricky sometimes, um, you know, and. You know, it, it, it's interesting to think about Gorsuch because, you know, Ryan, going back to your original question, which was, you know, about how the Supreme Court is now intertwined in this Trump case in two different ways. We've talked about one way, which is this immunity question. And um, the the other the other reason that the Supreme Court is now enmeshed in the case is because they've recently decided to separately take up a case that is about the scope of a federal obstruction statute that has been used to charge hundreds of January 6th rioters and is also being used to charge Trump. Um, he faces two charges under this uh, this federal statute, which is about obstructing an official proceeding. And Supreme Court um, this week agreed to clarify the scope of that federal statute. And the reason I'm thinking about Gorsuch with regard to this case is that, you know, Gorsuch is sort of like one of these justices who like generally is quite conservative, but on the other hand, does have some unorthodox views, especially when it comes to, you know, the power of 
um, the government to use criminal laws in um, in broad ways. And so, you know, I don't think it's so. I, so I, I think it will be interesting to watch people like him when the Supreme Court hears this case, because, you know, in recent years, the Supreme Court has been quite skeptical of the government's attempts to use um, federal criminal statutes um, expansively. And, you know, some might say that is exactly what is being done with this federal obstruction statute. This is obviously going to be one of the the biggest events of, uh, I'm assuming, 2024, unless the Supreme Court really expedites this. Um, what's the timeline we're potentially looking at here? And I know that requires a lot of speculation. Yeah, it's very difficult to say. I mean, we're talking now in mid-December. Like you mentioned, next week, Trump is supposed to respond to Jack Smith's request. Presumably, if the Supreme Court moved very quickly, they could, you know, issue an order deciding to take up the case before Christmas uh, and and, and, uh, issue that order before Christmas and potentially uh, set a very expedited briefing schedule and schedule an oral argument for January and then rush out a a decision in the following days or weeks. Um, When the Supreme Court wants to act quickly, they have the ability to act quickly. But they don't often want to act quickly, I will say, as an important caveat. And, um, you know, so I, I you know, I, I think that the, 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 the swiftest that we could see a possible oral argument in this case is January with, you know, a decision to follow, like, maybe shortly after that. But already, you're already running into that March 4th trial date that I mentioned before. Um, and, you know, so this is a very compressed timeline. And uh, I think... You know, as these developments, you know, you know, continue, I think it's it's increasingly unlikely that you know the March fourth trial day that Judge Shutkin has has been so determined to stick to, you know, will indeed stick. All right. So just to wrap up this part of the discussion, like this is the ball game in in some ways. This decision, because on the one hand, if they take the if they take this case quickly and decide, you know what, Trump's right, he does have immunity. There's no trial at all. Yeah, that's right. Um, if the Supreme Court rules that Trump is and, immune, that totally shuts down the federal election interference case. Case closed. Would, let's be clear. That's in the realm of possibility. Or, or, is, or would that be such an absolutely insane uh, opinion? Like, what are the chances that they uh, disagree with, with Chutkin's, uh, you know, sort of uh, very high-minded uh, opinion about the, the, the rule of law uh, and say no, no, no. You're Chutkin. You're wrong. Actually, he is immune. What, what are the What are the chances? I mean, look. This is a completely novel issue. The Supreme Court has literally never weighed in on the immunity of former presidents from criminal charges for an obvious reason. This has never happened before. So it's tough to make predictions. I would say a couple things. One, this current Supreme Court generally, you know, is generally takes a a robust view of presidential power and presidential immunities. So you start from that baseline. The second thing I would say is that Trump's arguments for immunity are extremely ambitious and aggressive and even extravagant. And I think most legal legal scholars do not think that they're serious arguments. They're very far-fetched. and, you know, and the third one I would just say is because this is so unprecedented, it's very difficult to know how the Supreme Court will view the, the, uh, the, 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 the arguments. They might try to like kind of carve out some kind of narrow path or issue some kind of narrow ruling. Um, but it's difficult for me to see how you could get five votes, even on this Supreme Court, that would declare Trump totally immune from you know, the charges fra- stemming from his efforts to, you know, subvert the 2020 election. Very difficult for me to say, but. And of course, James, obviously these deadlines matter because this is not any criminal defendant where eventually they're going to be tried. This is a pretty special situation. Yeah, that's exactly right. They matter because if Trump wins the election next year, then he has the ability, and he almost certainly would, totally shut down the two federal cases against him. He could order. He could appoint an attorney general and order that attorney general to drop the charges altogether. Um, and as for the state cases against him, very likely they could not proceed while he was president if he won the election either. And so, if these cases don't go to trial in 2024 before the election, it's 
quite possible that the trials will never happen at all or could be pushed to 2029 or thereafter, you know, after Trump, you know, leaves a potential second term. And so whether Trump ever sees the inside of a criminal courtroom really may hinge on the trial schedule for 2024 and whether these remain on pace. What happens if Trump, with the trials in December, Trump wins the election in November, goes on trial in December, gets sentenced, goes to prison on January 1st, 2025, but he's president. Can he pardon himself? Presumably. I doubt that's going to happen. Maybe this is a little yeah. silly. But. Yeah. So, I mean, the fact that we're no, even talking about it, it's a constitutional crisis in a sense. Um, and so the notion of a self-pardon has been debated by constitutional scholars. It's certainly never been tried before by any president. Um, there's probably nothing stopping Trump from issuing himself a pardon, certainly in the federal cases. Presidents only have pardon power over federal crimes. So he could pardon himself in either of the federal cases. The state cases, he could not pardon himself. Um, presidents have no, no pardon power over state charges. And so it would depend on what case he was convicted in. And, you know, it would depend on the, uh, you know, the legitimacy of a presidential soft pardon, which certainly would be debated. But if we know anything about Trump, I, I don't think that he would be, uh, you, you know, he, I don't think he would be um, <laughs> cur- curtailed in, in, in doing something by, you know, abstract constitutional debates about its legitimacy. <laughs> There's so much about the Trump legal stuff where it's like, I feel really silly saying this, but then it's like some of it's not actually silly. No, like what the scenario you just laid out is one of the 67 insane possibilities <laughs> that we could, you know, think of, right? He could be in, what if he's convicted and sentenced and is in jail? He could literally, be, injured. He could literally be running for president in jail. Eugene yeah. Jebs did. Yeah. We've done explainers on this before, right? There's no law against it. Yeah, I mean, we've written about it. Um, there's absolutely no impediment to running for president from a prison cell. There's no <laughs> impediment to the American public electing a president, a president who is imprisoned. And um, he couldn't vote. Yeah, and it's kind of a healthy. Exactly. It's kind he of might a not healthy be able to vote demo- for himself. It's kind of a healthy democracy thing. I think that's good. I think like the criminal justice system shouldn't be able to veto <laughs> someone from being president. Sorry, I do. I mean. That's true. Why, that's, it's the Constitution has just a few requirements that we shouldn't. You know, we should. That's uh, that's that's fair. He's the right. If you're the right age, we haven't and, had lots uh, of felons get elected so far. So far, the norms have held up pretty good. I, I will say that, though, Ryan, that one of those constitutional requirements is that you're not supposed to have been an insurrectionist, and and that is another whole legal issue being. Well, that's the whole right thing now. we didn't talk about. <laughs> yeah, that's that's yeah. All right, let's assume that you know. The conventional wisdom among a lot of legal scholars, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, um, that that the conventional wisdom prevails that the Supreme Court, one, takes this issue up very quickly, and two, uh, decides it uh, in favor of Jack Smith, and the trial uh, continues apace. What are – and that obviously very, very big issue is is out of the way. and the trial schedule looks like it uh, stays uh, basically on, on track for March. What are the other major pretrial issues that have been identified that we're going to be reading about in the coming weeks and, 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 and months? Journeying down to Florida um, and the, the documents case, which correct me if I'm wrong, most people agree is in terms of the evidence and sort of the, the clearest cut case is the is is the one that uh you know on the merits just seems like you know uh trump's going to have a, a a tough time defending himself against these charges um is that right james yeah i think it's fair to say that most legal experts view the case that way yes so certainly the, the the indictment in that case is is extraordinarily damning and you know you know you know, other lesser known defendants get charged with exactly the same sort of conduct all the time and almost always go to prison. All right. In that case, we have a judge uh, quite different than Chutkin, Eileen Cannon. Let's start with her. What have we learned this year about Eileen Cannon? Yeah. So Eileen Cannon, so as many folks probably remember, you know, is herself a Trump appointee. Um, she was appointed to the federal bench by Trump in the in the final months of his administration. So she's a younger judge and she's uh, somewhat inexperienced. Um, she's certainly never had a case of of this magnitude. 
And, you know, I think that what we've what we've learned is that she's been far more deferential to Trump um, in this case than, say, Tanya Chotkin has been in the D.C. case, uh, particularly with regard to scheduling. So, you know, um, we, we published a story a, a few weeks back looking at how Cannon's handling of the case has subtly created delays um, just in terms of her pretrial rulings on procedural motions and the way that she's organized the schedule and things like that. She has shown no rush to get this case to trial. Now, to be fair, there is a trial date set for May 20th. Um, and so far, she hasn't moved that trial date. So right now, the case you know, could, in theory, still go to trial in May. But I think it's looking increasingly unlikely that that, that could happen, given, you know, her sort of um, her slowness in, you know, managing a lot of these pretrial pr- processes. All right. So in this case, what, what are the pretrial issues that we are following closely that are of interest in this case? Well, so there's a ton of back and forth about how classified evidence can be used in the case. Right, because you know he's you know, Trump's accused of you know hoarding classified documents. Um, you know th- th- those documents themselves are key evidence, you know, in the case. But that poses all sorts of uh, problems because um, you know if you know if 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 the if the information is classified, it's not supposed to be released publicly, but the trial is supposed to be public. And so there's all sorts of questions about whether you know Trump himself. Uh, gets access to not just the the core underlying documents that he's accused of of um, of hoarding, but but other related classified information. There's questions about whether his two co-defendants in the case, um, two Trump aides who are accused of helping him obstruct justice when the government sought to retrieve these classified documents. There's questions about whether those defendants have access to a lot of this classified information, and um, so so that's like still ongoing as we speak. And I, I think that's like a key issue to watch in the coming months. So lots of opportunities for the defense to um, delay things with pretrial motions and, uh, and and reasons that they need more time, which is in general, the Trump strategy, right? All right, Betsy, who is the witness in this case that Donald Trump is the most freaked out about? I would guess it's Yusil Tavares, who was the Mar-a-Lago IT director. Initially, Tavares's lawyer was Stanley Woodward, who was funded by Trump World and, you know, was, was one of the lawyers Trump World had been connecting people with. But then Tavares stopped working with Woodward, brought on a different counsel, uh, which was a huge signal that he was going to be cooperating with prosecutors. And you don't want to get crosswise of your IT guys. They know everything. <laughs> a great lesson. <laughs> Don't first don't write things down, but if you do write them down, become friends with the IT person. <laughs> it's true. So one other person I would flag, you know, interestingly enough, is you know one of Trump's own lawyers, this guy Evan Corcoran, who could end up actually being used as a witness against him because there's some suggestion by prosecutors that you know Corcoran was part of discussions with Trump in which Trump essentially asked Corcoran to help him shield the classified documents that the government was trying to uh, retrieve. And Corcoran took detailed notes of those conversations. And those conversations have, those notes have been <laughs> turned over to, to prosecutors. Um, and, and so, they, you know, they could potentially be introduced at trial or, or Corcoran could be put on the stand. And, um, you know, sort of to your point, Ryan, uh, you know, maybe, you know, no, notes about a, a criminal conspiracy can, can often come back to, to haunt the alleged conspirator. Let's go north from Florida to uh to georgia um what's the what's the status of 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 that case and just to continue with our theme in terms of whether there's even going to be a trial next year which james you keep pointing out is a big question mark to donald trump there, there might not be any trials that that's still that's within the realm of possibility um what's the what's the likelihood of the georgia trial actually happening in 2024 I think it's quite unclear right now. So, of course, this is, you know, Georgia state charges for, for Trump and, and many of his allies for, for interfering with the, the election results, you know, in that state. I believe she said something like she could go to trial within 30 days at, at, at a moment's notice. 
she's ready to go. And, and so, yeah, like as you're saying, Ryan, like what's so interesting about these cases is that the different prosecutors and the different judges, they're not formally coordinating with each other, but they're all watching each other. And, you know, every time one case moves, another case could potentially slot in. And, you know, it's a very interesting game of like these different chess pieces moving across the board. And, you know, every every development in each case can potentially affect the others. Of all the new and interesting characters from the legal world that have become important for us to cover in 2023, uh, the one that I, I probably know the least about, but I'm the most fascinated by is Judge Scott McAfee in Georgia, who is just one of these uh, public officials who has been thrust into history um, in a very unlikely role. And, um, you know, he's not a, he's not a big time judge. Uh, he wasn't appointed uh, by a president. Um, but he's, he's, he seems to have been getting very good reviews from a lot of the, the, the smart legal observers that, that I follow. Um, what do we know about Scott McAfee? Yeah, it, it really is kind of a wild story how he's ended up as this main character here. Um, when you're appointed to, you know, say, you know, a federal district judgeship in Washington, D.C., like Tanya Chutkin, you expect that you're going to hear some very heavy duty cases, including cases about presidential power, right, with historic importance. But when you're appointed to be a trial judge in Atlanta, Okay, you're expecting to do some, you know, some murder trials, some armed robberies, some civil fraud cases, garden variety kind of state court stuff. You are not expecting to do a sprawling racketeering conspiracy charge involving Donald Trump, a former president and many of his top allies about, you know, election subversion. But that is exactly what Scott McAvee has has walked into. He's young. I think he's only like 34 or 35. He's like pretty recently, you know, out of out of law school. Even he doesn't have a ton of experience. He is a former prosecutor. Um, he's sort of like a, he's a cellist by training. You know, interestingly enough, he was vice president of you know his FedSoc, his Federal Society chapter at um, at UGA. Um, but like you alluded to, Ryan, by all accounts, he's handled this case extraordinarily well, given the circumstances. I mean, I think legal experts on both sides have have really applauded his performance so far. And what's interesting is that you can see all of his performance and how he's presiding over this trial in real time, because everything he does, every hearing is streamed live on YouTube. McAfee has his own YouTube page. It's wild. It's just like so different from what we're normally uh, accustomed to in, in federal court, which don't allow any kind of cameras. And so you can literally watch him preside over these, you know, you know, multi-hour long hearings and um, it's a very difficult or organizational task because there's so many defendants, there's so many motions. But you know he's gotten this case moving, and um, you know I think he's like most folks who have been observing him like think he's he's handled it quite fairly so far. Points in our book for transparency, unlike these federal courts, which like you know operate under like medieval rules, it seems to me. Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. So, Betsy, speaking of con conventional wisdom, um, a lot of the conventional wisdom on the story, the, the legal story, legal and political story that you have been covering very closely, um, and that's that's Hunter Biden and the issues around that. Um, a lot of the conventional wisdom there is that eh, probably doesn't matter. Nobody's paying attention to, to this Hunter Biden issue. Nobody can make uh, sense of it. Um, I want to. I want you to get into the sort of politics of it, of why that may be right or wrong. But let's like start, you know, thirty thousand feet with where things um, are right now with that, and. Um, you and I talked before, and sort of the um, four tracks of the of the Hunter Biden 
story as 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 you see them. And I want to sort of take listeners through those, um, sort of, you know, what exactly did Hunter do? <laughs> uh, I'm going to lay them out here and then we'll sort of go through them uh, just so listeners understand where we're going. Yeah, um, and, I'll, and I'll try to what avoid a, what a, 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 I'll try to avoid a, a Rick Perry moment when it comes to uh, to these four <laughs> tracks. Uh, specific numbers is yeah, always so a little dangerous as an English major. Um, the first the first bucket of the Hunter story is the very simple question of what did he do? Uh, why why is he embroiled in scandals? Why has he been indicted? Uh, and what we know for sure is is what the Justice Department has accused him of, which is buying a gun while he was a regular frequent user of crack cocaine. That's that's currently a felony until the Supreme Court tells us otherwise and not paying his taxes, willfully failing to file his tax returns, willfully failing to pay them. And in addition to that, misleading uh, the government about what his tax bill actually was. On top of that, of course, there's a bunch of other stuff that he's not been indicted for, but that Republicans say is still very important. That includes his time on the board of Ukrainian national natural gas company called Burisma, his work with a Chinese energy conglomerate that's now defunct, that had very close ties to the Chinese government, Chinese military and intelligence apparatus, uh, his connection to an investment fund uh, linked to China that uh, has has raised certain number of questions, particularly on the Republican side, but also among China watchers. Um, and then Republicans have also long alleged that Hunter Biden uh, illegally lobbied or illegally used his influence in Washington to help his corporate friends and clients. That's basket number one. What exactly did Hunter do? Basket number two is, Wait, let's Betsy. Before we let's let's sit with basket number one for for a second before before we get into the the next basket. You had an interesting aside there about um, the Supreme Court. Is there is there a chance that uh, the Supreme Court could uh, change the outcome of the Hunter uh, trials? Yes, there sure is. Uh, about a year ago, the Supreme Court handed down a ruling that dramatically changed. Second Amendment jurisprudence in this company, in this country, uh, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. And in that ruling, the Supreme Court said that all gun restrictions in the United States have to be analogous to gun restrictions that existed at the time of the founding. Now, that opens up a very, very, very large can of worms because gun laws at the time of the founding varied from colony to colony, and some of them were were noxious and appalling. So the Supreme Court handed down this ruling, and it created total chaos uh, at the district and circuit court level because there were all these questions about what does this look like in practice. Now the Supreme Court has agreed to take up the first case clarifying that, the, it's the case is called Rahimi, you know, Rahimi versus United States. And the question the Supreme Court will answer is, does the United States or does the Constitution allow the government to ban people who are under domestic violence restraining orders from owning guns? So the Supreme Court's going to rule on that. And inevitably, they're going to have to weigh in on a close but different question related to Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden's been accused of unlawfully owning a gun as a drug user. It's a status crime. Uh, and the Supreme Court's going to have to answer, can you ban someone from, from owning a gun because they use drugs? And the statute banning it that, that Hunter Biden's accused of violating doesn't define drug user. And Hunter's lawyers are jumping up and down, waving their hands over their heads, yelling about this. They've been saying for more than a year now to the Justice Department, the statute under which Hunter Biden faces this legal jeopardy is unconstitutional. We're going to push this all the way all the way to the Supreme Court, and you're going to lose. Which, of course, raises other very interesting political questions for the Biden administration. Uh, but yes, there is a totally realistic chance that um, the gun crime he's accused of having committed will be found to be unconstitutional. In fact, just a couple months ago, the Fifth Circuit Court, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals issued a ruling declaring that very statute, the drug user prohibition statute, unconstitutional under Bruin. That uh, that ruling from the Fifth Circuit, a very conservative appeals court, you know, is now on appeal at the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court hasn't indicated whether it's going to take that case or not. Um, and of course, the Fifth Circuit's ruling doesn't directly implicate the Hunter Biden prosecution because 
it's not. Uh, He's charged in the Third it, Circuit. Yeah, exactly. It's it's in a different circuit. Um, but you know, at least one appeals court has already said that this mm-hmm. statute that you know the special that special counsel David Weiss is using against Hunter Biden is indeed unconstitutional. And, and Hunter's lawyers cite that Fifth Circuit ruling right. when making the case on the Second Amendment piece. You want to hear about the other buckets, Betsy, Ryan? F- or you want to Wait, hang out in no, this first we, bucket we a little longer? More, we need, there's, there's more to scoop out of this bucket because <laughs> you, you said it raises it raises some interesting political implications for the Biden administration. So two questions. One, what's what kind of timeline are we looking at here if we know? And then uh, say more about these political implications you mentioned. Uh, timeline, I don't know. I need to be calling people about that. I don't have specific dates. Uh, these cases are much less exotic and exciting than the Trump ones. So uh, presumably a shorter timeline. In terms of the politics, well, there's the politics of the Second Amendment issue and there's the broader Hunter political issue. Specifically on the Second Amendment piece, I would think these politics are a little bit of a nightmare because one of Joe Biden's biggest issues that his aides say is one of the most politically helpful to him is his stance on gun rights and his consistent career-long advocacy for stricter gun laws uh, and for what advocates describe as these really important gun safety measures. And in contrast, there's Hunter Biden's legal team arguing actually <laughs> actually tight gun laws are unconstitutional. Uh, actually, a very important tool in prosecutors' toolbox to take away guns from people largely pro- per- largely perceived as dangerous, uh, in particular people who are regular users of hard drugs, actually that tool should not be in their toolbox. So the legal argument that Hunter Biden's team is making is, uh, you know, on another planet from the legal argument that <laughs> that Joe Biden is making. Um, and it kind of makes things uncomfortable for everybody because, of course, Hunter Biden is now a fellow traveler with um, the NRA and, you know, very pro-Second Amendment Republicans. They're all oddly enough on the same page. It's not crazy for constitutional law issues to create strange bedfellows. This is not the first strange bedfellow situation. But it probably is the first strange bedfellow situation involving the son of a president. Well, that is a good segue into the second bucket, because despite Hunter's newfound affinity for the Second Amendment, it hasn't made him uh, many um, fans on, on the right. So what? Uh, let's, let's uh, dig into what the GOP is doing to capitalize on uh, Hunter's travails. That's right. Bucket number two is what the Republicans are saying about what Hunter Biden did. Uh, Republicans have been investigating Hunter Biden going all the way back to 2020, if not earlier. Uh, and you know, in in 20, you know, during the first Trump impeachment, part of the reason that impeachment was kicked off was because Donald Trump was pushing the Ukrainian government to investigate Hunter Biden. Trump has long seen Hunter and his overseas business deals as a amazing political opportunity. What's funny is that unbeknownst to Trump at the time that he was pressuring Zelensky uh, to, to announce an investigation of Hunter Biden, his own Justice Department was already investigating the guy. Uh, but in terms of the Republican political project, We've got three congressional committees that were working on an impeachment inquiry, which, which of course, became formal yesterday. And now that there's this impeachment inquiry, we can expect Republicans to be talking, uh, you know, loudly, in detail, with great enthusiasm about, about Hunter. Part of the reason that Hunter Biden is so helpful to Republicans is that he's one of the few things that brings the House Republican Conference together. Uh, there's not a lot else that virtually every House Republican agrees on. Uh, but Hunter, Mike Johnson, do. Hunter's like a gift. Yeah, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. Hunter, they do, uh, and that's um. And so I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect it to slow down anytime soon. And of course, uh, the you know, conservative media, right-wing media ecosystem is also very enthusiastic about the Hunter Biden story. Um, and there's really a symbiotic relationship there. All right, Betsy, what's uh, bucket number three on my list is what is the Justice Department doing about Hunter? Um, and it's been an interesting year in terms of uh, that bucket. It's where, where just been a totally wacky adventure for the Justice Department when it comes to this investigation. Uh, federal investigators started it looking at Hunter's finances back in 2018. 
it became public that they were investigating him in December of 2020, just weeks after Election Day. Trump was irate that that investigation didn't become public before Election Day. And in the remarks that Trump gave on January 6th in front of the White House, one of the themes he touched on was Hunter Biden. Uh, he, he said it was election interference that, that the DOJ probe did not become public. This summer, Hunter Biden's lawyers and federal prosecutors negotiated a plea deal that would have almost certainly resulted in Hunter spending no time incarcerated. He would have pleaded guilty to two tax misdemeanors, and he would have entered what's called a pretrial diversion agreement, where if he kept his nose clean and didn't get into any trouble, a gun charge against him would have been withdrawn. Anyway, they reached this deal. Uh, It was rolled out, publicly announced in June. Republicans and some Experts, legal analysts said it was a sweetheart deal that Hunter was getting uh, treated with kid gloves. Then there was a very contentious hearing in July. And after the hear- at the hearing, the judge directed Hunter's lawyers and federal prosecutors to clarify just how much the plea deal protected Hunter from future criminal charges. Hunter's lawyers and the prosecutors could not reach a consensus on that. Uh, and the plea deal fell apart. In August, Merrick Garland made David Weiss a special counsel, giving him nationwide authority to bring criminal charges against Hunter anywhere he wanted. Uh, And then I believe in September, David Weiss charged Hunter with gun crimes related to the fact that uh, Hunter, you know, has written in his memoir he was using crack cocaine, I think, quote unquote, every 15 minutes in 2018, the year when he purchased a gun. Um, And then uh, this Wait, Betsy, just, Betsy, on that last point there, just to clarify, is it, is it, is it right that that was the only uh, way that prosecutors uh, confirmed the link between the, dr- the drug use and the timing of the of the gun ch- charge was the memoir. Did he did he screw himself over with that? Good question. We don't know the totality of prosecutors' evidence that he was a drug user at the time. Um, we don't know if they would have known that absent his memoir. Of course, Got the um, the alleged laptop that's been the contents of which have been widely dispersed by Hunter Biden's political opponents also includes voluminous documentation of drug abuse. And Got it presumably would not be hard for prosecutors to show that he was regularly using drugs in 2018. That said, his memoir uh, has has been fodder for, for prosecutors, particularly in the tax case. So a corollary to our earlier conversation about not writing stuff down and being friends with the IT person <laughs> is don't admit to crimes in your memoir, at least if the statute of limitations still exists. <laughs> um, that's, uh, that's, that's not bad advice. We're, we're, <laughs> all right. Go, keep going. This is so, good stuff. so it fell apart. Uh, everything went sideways. And in December of this year, the Justice Department filed an additional indictment against Hunter Biden in California because that's where he lived at the time of the crimes alleged in the indictment. And those crimes are tax crimes. DOJ accused him of willfully failing to file his tax returns, willfully failing to pay the taxes he owed, and of distorting and and, dis- and deceiving the government about how much taxes he owed by lying and saying certain things were business expenses when they were actually personal expenses. So financial crimes in California because that's where he lived uh, at the time of the allegations. And that's where DOJ is. Uh, There's tons and tons of discourse about whether or not a regular Joe would face charges for the same actions, both the gun case and the tax case. Yeah, I was literally just going to ask you, what's yeah on the on the tax uh, uh, well on both of those give us the debate about about that yeah uh to teach the controversy on the gun side the argument that hunter biden's lawyers make is he he bought this gun they say he didn't buy ammo they say he possessed the gun for 11 days he never shot the gun didn't use the gun in a crime uh law enforcement recovered the gun in 2018 And then, despite the fact that federal law enforcement knew about his gun escapade for years, they didn't charge him with any gun-related crime until 2023. And Hunter Biden's lawyers essentially say, this is ticky-tacky stuff. You're throwing the book at him because of pressure from congressional Republicans. No normal person would face charges under the same circumstances. They say people who are charged 
with possessing guns while being drug users almost always face that charge because there are other aggravating circumstances. In terms of the tax case, criminal tax charges are always a huge judgment call for DOJ because they are so common. So many people break the laws in relation to their taxes. Everyone has an opportunity to commit a tax felony. You don't file your tax returns, bang, that's a felony. Um, and so the DOJ is often very selective about when they charge people with crimes related to taxes. Um, I would say the majority of the smart tax defense lawyers and former IRS lawyers who I've spoken to have said they think the tax charges leveled against Hunter Biden are outside the norm for criminal tax charges. And the U.S. attorney for L.A. in a closed-door interview with congressional investigators specifically said when he was asked about this that I think he said he's never seen an example of someone facing criminal charges over their taxes when they ultimately paid the tax bill with penalties and interests, if they paid that bill before the investigation or the indictment was handed down. Uh, and Hunter Biden, of course, and his lawyers have, have long said that he paid the, the, due, the overdue taxes as well as penalties and interests uh, years ago. And his lawyers are arguing that um, they're being pre- the Justice Department was pressured to do this. Have Republicans um, been saying the same thing? Have re- sorry, have Republicans been taking credit uh, for pressuring the Department yeah. of Justice uh, to do this? I, I would say kind of yes. Republicans have certainly said that if they did not air the allegations of two IRS whistleblowers who worked on the Hunter Biden investigation, they say if they had not raised those allegations, made the allegations public, then Hunter Biden's plea deal would have gone through. The judge at that at that contentious hearing in July would have asked fewer questions and the whole criminal matter would have been resolved. And Hunter Biden's lawyers make the same point. It's one of it's one of the few points of consensus that those that that whistleblower testimony was a really consequential moment in terms of how the federal prosecutors uh, investigating Hunter thought about the criminal case they were putting together against him. Betsy, can I jump in and, and ask you what you think of the apparent dissonance between the Republican line of attack on the Trump cases and their view of the Hunter Biden case? Because, of course, like the whole Republican theory of the case with the Trump prosecutions is that this is a DOJ being run by Joe Biden and being weaponized for political purposes against Joe Biden's enemy. And yet at the same time, that very same Justice Department um, using a different special counsel is, you know, bringing quite aggressive charges um, against Hunter Biden, the president's son, in two different jurisdictions. Like, how do Republicans explain that potential uh, dissonance? I have not heard a cogent explanation. Uh, and on top of that is the fact that the Hunter Biden probe opened when the Justice Department was helmed by Trump's political appointees. Um, so there's, you know, no doubt there's inconsistency there when it comes to this argument of the entire Justice Department is being puppet mastered by the White House and, you know, Joe Biden's telling them exactly what to do. I think the challenge for DOJ, which, DO, which you know, Justice Department officials will never say, but which is a reality, is that, of course, they're thinking about the politics because it's impossible to think about Hunter Biden or Donald Trump and imagine or, or use your imagination to divorce those two men from politics. They're, they, they're mixed up in all this stuff because of politics. Trump is mixed up in yeah. the allegations against him because of politics. Hunter Biden uh, is obviously somebody who was very involved in a prominent American political family. The idea that you can divorce thoughts about politics from these charging decisions is silly. DOJ has to say they can do it. Fair enough. Uh, but but these things are inextricably linked, and it's what puts the Justice Department in a really unenviable position, and it just makes it, – it, it puts them in a spot where no matter what they do, they're going to piss off 50 percent of the country. The only question is, are you going to piss off 50 percent of the country, or are you going to pull a James Comey and piss off 100 percent of the country? Um, and at least in the Hunter Biden case, it seems like they've opted for the 100 percent of the country option. Now, Betsy, the final bucket here, and one of the most interesting developments uh, in this case, is 
what Hunter himself is now doing about all of this. Um, tell us about how that changed this week. For years, Hunter Biden took a strategy of strategic silence when it came to the legal and political fiascos he was mixed up in. When David Weiss became special counsel in August, that changed. And on Team Hunter, a view emerged that the Justice Department was engaging in a draconian strategy of trying to be as aggressive as possible against him. Uh, and it also became clear that the strategic silence strategy, to be a bit to be a bit redundant, had failed. He was he was about to face two indictments, uh, which have now come. He was mixed up in an impeachment controversy. Uh, and if you look at if you look at polling, CNN did a poll in September that showed more than half of Americans believe Joe Biden was involved in Hunter Biden's business dealings. Uh, it didn't work. I think I think by I think any clear-eyed person could say the strategic silence policy did not work. Uh, and in the last few months, there's been a dramatic change. Hunters filed a series of lawsuits against uh, folks on the right who've targeted him, including Rudy Giuliani and former Trump White House staffer Garrett Ziegler. He sued the IRS for violating his privacy. So we've got Hunter suing an agency helmed by his father. Uh, and then yesterday... He spoke publicly and on camera in front of Mike's about uh, his addiction, about he expressed pride over the work that he's done in the private sector, expressed pride about his time serving on corporate boards, obviously a reference to his time on the Burisma board that Republicans have lambasted him over, um, and basically said, bring it. And finally, on this, on, on the politics of it, Betsy, um, a couple of questions. One, there's always been a little bit of... Um, friction and uh, separation between Biden political world, uh, campaign world, the White House, and 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 Hunter. Um, at the moment, has that uh, gap narrowed or is it wider, uh, w wider than ever? Um, do you get the sense that Hunter is trying to coordinate more uh, to the extent he can uh, with his father's political interests or is it um, you know two worlds that uh, you know don't talk to each other um, except at the sort of father uh, son level? Any sense good of question. the, at the, the good question? Good question. At the, at the, at the father, I I don't think there's been an increased fusion between those two worlds in recent weeks. Uh, Hunter Biden and his father have have publicly said they talk to each other every day. Joe Biden constantly talks about how he's talking to his son every day. Uh, and we know that Hunter Biden told his dad that yesterday morning's events were going to happen before they happened. Uh, we also know Hunter's legal team sends word to, to very senior White House staff before they make big legal moves. But my understanding is that there's zero coordination or handholding between I shouldn't say zero. I should say very minimal coordination and handholding between Team Hunter and Team DNC, Team Biden campaign. We saw a rare instance of that yesterday. Uh, Congressman Eric Swalwell booked the location on Capitol Hill for Hunter Biden to give his remarks, and he was there as part of Hunter's entourage. Um, it's almost the exception that proves the rule. For the most part, elected Democrats kind of run away when they get asked about Hunter, don't like talking about him, don't want to be seen as defending him. When you talk about the politics, um, another piece of this that's interesting is that Hunter Biden has also told friends that he actually feels pretty good about his political instincts. Uh, he will say he would never do something to harm his his father's uh, political future. But he he's also said to people- I can't, that, uh, I, Betsy, I can't help but, but just smile a, a little, little bit. A little bit of eye rolling there. Yeah, yeah. A little bit of eye rolling. And just think of the number of Biden comms people <laughs> in the last decade who would uh, who would have some uh, disagreement with issue. that statement. Who would I'm, take issue. Who would take issue. for yeah. interrupting. I'm not going to do live <laughs> fact checking of this. But what I will tell you is that what he'll tell friends is he feels he grew up around politics, part of a prominent political family. He'll point to his memoir and say- Everybody thought that was a terrible idea, but the White House cites it all the time. Everybody thought I shouldn't talk about the drug abuse, but I wrote this book and now the White House can say I've talked about the it. DOJ of also course, cites it. DOJ read it too. <laughs> so maybe that wasn't the smartest. Time will tell. No, I'm sorry, but keep 
But that's kind of in on Team Hunter. That was the thinking that shaped his decision tomorrow. And it'll be tested, you know. Is this is this going to become a political nightmare for Democrats if if Hunter's going in front of cameras and talking about his history of drug use and his business transactions? Or will this new on-offense strategy reap dividends? Hard to know. Uh, and I don't know that conventional wisdom is super useful on Hunter stuff in the same way that it's not super useful on Trump. I've been listening to you. One thing that occurs to me is, you know, perhaps political reporters have underestimated how big a deal politically this could be uh, in in 2024, this just whole basket of Hunter issues, even if you think it's unfair um, that Biden, there's been no evidence that Biden, uh, that President Biden did anything wrong and that the impeachment inquiry is is just sort of over overblown. Um, you know, politics isn't always fair. If you have uh, Republicans in Congress hammering this issue every day, and um, certain media organs uh, uh, running with it. Um, these things don't go away, and, and, they, and they metastasize. Do you think? Um, I mean, I don't want to equate this stuff in any way with like the very serious crimes that one of the likely candidates, Donald Trump, has been credibly accused of. Um, but do you think politically, it's it's uh, a, a, a significant issue for for Biden in his reelection. It's not helpful. It's not helpful to have your son. <laughs> <indictment>. <laughs> I mean, arguably, Trump's indictments are helpful. Nobody's arguing Hunter's indictments are helpful. Um, and yeah, Republicans and Republicans sure think that the impeachment proceedings will be politically helpful to them. I don't think Democrats think they're going to put points on the board. Um, I think the best the best. I think Democrats think the best they can do is break even and try to talk about other stuff. Um, and I, I'm also I also can say with a lot of confidence, many congressional Dems view the politics around Hunter as baked in. They don't see a lot of people who are like single issue Hunter Biden voters who have not already decided how they're going to vote on the Hunter Biden issue. Right. Thank you both so much for this very very long. Uh, we covered an enormous amount of uh, ground. Very long conversation. Um, I understand all of these issues 10 times better than I did going into this, and I hope our listeners do too. I know they will. Um, So really, really appreciate it. And that's our show. Our producer is Kara Tabor. Our senior producer is Alex Keeney. I'm Ryan Lizza, host and executive producer of Deep Dive. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Tell us what you think about the show or who you'd like to hear on Deep Dive. Email me at rlizza at politico.com. And please subscribe to Playbook Deep Dive wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>